Hello again. This chapter I'm going to talk about what it meant, what it was like to have my dad die at 11. And I'm sure I'll touch on this topic many times throughout future episodes, but I wanted to take a moment now to try and just give a synopsis of that experience, what it was like and what it meant and what I think it means. And it continues to mean new and different things to me as life progresses. But let's take a moment and see where we're at with this whole thing. So when we moved to Boise, um, my dad was having migraines. Uh, They were severe I know my mom was really worried, my dad was really worried, and they didn't know what was going on. The doctors in Reno had not figured out what was causing it. Uh, Shortly after we moved to Boise, they did find that he had a brain tumor. And it was one of those kinds of tumors that have like lots of little fingers snaking all the way through your brain. So it uh, was really hard to figure out how to treat and get rid of. Uh, He had at least one, I think two, brain surgeries where they removed a bunch of it. Uh, But they couldn't get it all, and so then they put him on chemotherapy um, that went on for months and months and months. Some of the early stories that I wasn't aware of and I heard about later was... uh, I think this was actually in Reno before we, they moved to Boise. <clears throat> there were little episodes where they, my mom recounts an episode where they were at a friend's house. They were having a dinner and um, towards the end of the evening, my dad was behaving kind of strangely and my mom picked up on that and she asked if they should go and my dad said, yeah, we should, we should go. So she told their friends that they were going to call it a night and head out. And my dad stood up and didn't move. And so my mom stood up and asked him if everything was okay. And he said, I can't remember how to get out of the room. Um, Which, you know, it's pretty obvious how to get out of any room typically. So that was a big red flag, and when they got to the car, he told her that she should drive, and um, I think there were some other things that happened on the way home or something, I can't remember the rest of that story, but, so there were things like that going on uh, that was causing my mom to be pretty concerned. So once we were in Boise, going through the the whole ordeal of his cancer lasted nine months, roughly. And as an 11-year-old kid, you know, it was pretty hard to, well, I was going to say it's pretty hard to know how to process it, but the reality is is you don't know how to process it. You don't have enough life experience. You don't have enough wisdom. You don't have enough maturity. You know, your brain is far from being fully formed, which doesn't happen until you're like 25. So you just don't have the capacity to really process and think through and appreciate what's happening Um, you just kind of roll with it because you don't know what else to do 
but there are definitely moments that are really scary for one reason or another and you don't know why you, you just don't have the insight you just know that you're scared and they're very unnerving and examples of this would be uh, one time I remember seeing my dad you know trying to get his pants on his motor skills were failing him you know and as an 11 year old kid my dad was six foot uh, six feet tall probably you know around 200 pounds um, so to an 11 year old kid he seemed like this big strong awesome man uh, someone who was always the the one that lit up a room and everyone made everyone laugh and just had tons of charisma and was super happy and successful and insightful and just all that that was my dad and so you know to see him start to lose his ability to function to move around to walk to do simple tasks like try and put his pants on uh, I remember he kind of came out of the room his pants were kind of half up um, and uh, he was trying to find figure find out where my mom was so that she could help him uh, and in the process of doing that he fell you know and just fell like a big old tree in a forest on the floor and I just kind of stood there really scared I didn't know what to do I didn't go to help him I just was kind of in shell shock you know and part of me is a little embarrassed by that the fact that I didn't go help him but you know I have to be compassionate with myself because I was 11 and I didn't know how to handle situations like that um, my mom came running in within seconds later and, uh, and helped him up and helped him. And, and so it was all fine, but, um, you know, and then when he ended up moving into a wheelchair, you know, by this time, all of his hair was gone. He had a big scar on his head from the, from the surgeries. And uh, he had a little, like, tool, little hand grabber thing where he could reach for things and try to grab them if they were small, a little, like, mechanical clamp thing that was off the end of a rod. And I remember once he got into the wheelchair, that was my first inclination because, you know, my mom's a positive person, my dad's a positive person, I think, you know, I'm a positive person, generally speaking, and I don't know if that's genetics or I got it from them, but um, up until that point, I, until he got in the wheelchair, I remember thinking that it was only a matter of time before the doctor's cured him and uh, but I remember when he got in the wheelchair that was kind of the first time I started to think you know he might not beat this and I don't remember how long he was in the wheelchair but he it wasn't that long uh, before he moved from the wheelchair into the bed we got a hospital bed that stayed in the living room uh, our house was up on a hill, and there was a huge wall of big, huge windows from ceiling to floor, and his bed stayed right by those windows, so he had a beautiful view of the valley, and he was in that bed for, I don't know, another month and a half or something like that. I'm kind of guessing, because I don't remember exactly, but before he passed away, and then I remember, you know, another thing that happened prior to that was I came in from mowing the lawn one day 
and he asked me to come over and he gave me a hug and he just broke down in tears, bawling. And I asked him what was wrong and he just said that I do, I do such a, he said, you do such a good job mowing the lawn. Which didn't make any sense to me at the time. I just was, I didn't understand why he was crying so hard about me mowing the lawn well. And of course, later it's obvious that he probably was well aware of the fact that he may never see me mow the lawn again. It could have been the last time. And he probably only saw me do it another couple times, and then and then he died. And then, you know, when he was in bed, he couldn't really talk anymore. He couldn't move anymore. And I think that probably only lasted maybe a month. And one of my regrets is that I didn't go in and talk to him. Uh, I was intimidated and I was scared. And uh, I knew he couldn't talk. So I didn't really know what to say. And I didn't go in there and just spend time with him. And I deeply regret that. But I try not to judge myself for it because, again, I was 11. And uh, I remember the morning when, you know, the when it was getting close to being the end, I remember my mom telling us that it was probably, that he would probably pass uh, in, you know, not in the, in the near future. And, and we might not have a lot of time with him left. And then I remember one waking up one morning, walking upstairs, and he was gone. And... My mom sat us down and told us that he died in the night. And that was that. And then, and it was just surreal. Like, I didn't cry. Uh, I was just kind of uh, in shock, I guess. And I don't really think many of us cried, but I don't really remember for sure. It's just such a surreal moment. And you know that everything has just changed. And will be changed forever. And I guess that's, you know, that's life, right? I think most of us have moments where everything changes. I think that's a commonality in most of our human stories. Where we have one or many of those moments where everything all of a sudden changes for one reason or another and that is the beauty and the horror of life so you know I think it was probably within about a week later that we had his funeral uh, out in Star Idaho at Star Cemetery I didn't cry then either Um, I remember you know all the extended family was there and everything and I was wearing a gray suit. And I remember a friend of mine, uh, Michael Fer- Michael uh, Taylor, coming up to me and saying something to the effect of, I don't know how you're doing this. How come you're not crying? And I didn't have a good answer. I was like, well, I don't know. And it wasn't actually, I don't think I really cried about it for a couple of years. Um, I think it was a couple years later that I was, I remember, and I don't remember if this is the first time I cried about it or not, but 
I remember a few years later, and I don't remember how many years, three, four, uh, I was having a particularly hard night and I wasn't, I didn't, I felt alone and everything. And I, we lived on 30 acres, an hour outside of Boise. And I remember walking out into just our fields in the hills and looking up at the stars and feeling really alone. And I, and that's when I, you know, I knew he was not around and not, not talking to me and like not helping me and all that good stuff. I couldn't ask him for any advice. I couldn't talk to him about any of my challenges or my problems or my concerns or my fears. I couldn't talk to him about any of that stuff because he wasn't there. And I remember crying. I was just that night and I was looking up at the stars and walking around out in the back 40, as they say. And uh, yeah, so I remember that moment. And there have been times since when I've cried. Sometimes when I've just missed him. Sometimes when I've been talking about him. Um, I always wanted that special experience that other people report to having where they feel the spirit of their loved one or whatever um, in some form or fashion. They have a dream or a vision or whatever where they get some reassurance, maybe the person comes to them and just tells them they love them and that they're okay or something like that. I always wanted that. I wanted that for a long time. Um, prayed for it a few times to God. Uh, I tried to pray in such a way that I wasn't quote unquote asking for a sign because I knew that that was wicked according to the Bible. So I didn't want to ask for a sign, but I did want to ask for some little piece of reassurance that my dad was still existed somewhere in the eternities and that he still cared and knew that I was there and whatever. And it never came. Um, and now I don't want to jump ahead, but now I've made, completely made my peace with that finally at uh, 46 years old. But... Uh, you know, so many things happen after that, right? And your dad is not there. Weddings, birthdays, all sorts of stuff. Going to college. And I remember uh, someone asking me something at my right around my wedding time. I think it was right after my wedding. Uh, that they asked me, was it hard? Was it really hard not having your dad there? And I told them no. It wasn't. And the reason why, you know, had they not asked that question, I might not have gained this insight. But the reason why is because, you know, I had a decade to get used to the fact that my dad would not be at my wedding. So it was no surprise to me that he wasn't there. I knew he wasn't going to be there. I didn't have expectations that he was going to be there. So the day proceeded basically just as I had anticipated. Would I have liked him to be there? Of course. Uh, was it a little bit of a bummer he wasn't there? Of course. But was it hard? Not really, because that's how I expected it to be. Um, yeah, I had 10 years to make my peace with the fact that he wouldn't be there. Um, and the, but it's the part, it's the moments that jump up that you don't expect that catch you off guard. Those are the hard moments that you don't see coming. 
And one of my favorite, one of my clearest examples of this is when I was over at my friend's house. This was in high school. I imagine I was probably a junior in high school. So that puts me 16, 17, something like that. And uh, I was over at his house and my buddy, Dustin, is changing the oil on his car. And I was like, oh, cool. I'm like, who taught you how to do that? And he's like, my dad did. And I was like, oh, yeah. That makes perfect sense. Of course, your dad did. Huh. And that was a moment where I did, I didn't see coming. And it was actually really hard. Realizing that my dad would never teach me how to change oil in my car. So those are the moments that are hard. Um, another example would be once I, once my kids, my, my, you know, once my kids, my boys specifically started to get older than 11, um, I found myself asking, well, what the hell does a good dad do to a teenage boy? Cause I didn't have a point of reference and you know, you may, some people may be like, well, you know, you, you, you had other family friends, you you had friends with fathers. So surely you had some point of references and yeah, there's some truth to that. I mean, I, I had, I had, I knew of other grown men in the world that I could observe. And so sure, there's some truth to that, but, um, that only goes so far. It's no substitute for, you know, watching your own father do whatever it is he's going to do in raising you. So, you know, uh, yeah. So trying to be a father to teenage boys specifically because I was a teenage boy, uh, I just had to kind of make it up, I don't know, figure it out on my own, which is fine. A lot of people do that. Uh, but that was another, another example of how it impacted me. Um, most of my, you know, I had really close guy friends growing up. There was a pack, a few, couple packs of us that I ran in. Um, and I'll talk more about those in future episodes when I just try to recount my own history. But, um, but some of my most closest friends, my very best friends were actually girls. Um, and sometimes I wonder if that has anything to do with the fact that I was raised by a single mom uh, for a huge chunk of my life, or maybe I, I was just predisposed to that anyway. Who knows? Questions that we'll never have answers, but, you know, I'm a guy that, uh, I mean, it's probably just more in my DNA, quite frankly. I'm a guy who's uh, in touch with his emotions. Um, I'm both, I feel like I'm pretty, you know, I'm a pretty good balance between masculine and feminine, and I can pull on both aspects of my nature. Um, And that's probably mostly DNA-driven, because my brother had the same experience, my younger brother had the same experience, and he's quite different than I am, uh, where he's uh, not that dialed into his emotions, Um, and I don't know if that's because he doesn't have them really, or if he's just pushing them down and locked them away to where he can't really access them much anymore. But, 
in any event, um, those are some observations. Yeah, so there are just lots of questions about, you know, what my dad would think of my life, what advice he would have given me, how much would we have fought in high school. I mean, one of the double-edged swords is the fact that I don't really have any memory of fighting with my dad. I have one memory where he got grouchy and Todd and I um, kind of pushed his buttons and made him upset. But that's one memory. Every other memory I have of him is him being awesome and positive and wonderful and loving and funny and, you know, perfect to my mom and everything. And so that's really cool, but it's also kind of a double-edged sword in the fact that, you know, using him as a standard in my mind of what it means to be a good man, well, I never got to understand any of his shortcomings or frailties or imperfections or anything. And so uh, it's kind of made a, a virtually impossible standard in my brain to try and live up to. And most of my life, I feel like I am woefully, woefully short of the man that my father was for that very reason. On the other hand, I'm really glad that I don't have any memories of him and I fighting like cats and dogs in high school, like I did with my mom, um, because I was a difficult teenager. So, you gotta take the good with the bad, I suppose. And, um, so yeah, I, there's just lots of unanswered questions as to, you know, would I have been able to take over the family business, which he created, which was in heavy equipment, um, which knowing my nature, I can, I enjoy almost everything in life. I enjoy learning, so I, I have no doubt that I would have potentially been able to take over that company, probably been very financially well off because he was very successful at it. Uh, maybe I would have continued, maybe I wouldn't, maybe I would have broke off, maybe he and I would have fought so much that I would have said screw that and I would have walked away from the business and I would have been an artist, a writer, who, who the hell knows. Things that make you go hmm, that you'll never have answers to. So, I guess that's it for now. I'm sure many things will come up in the future, but there hasn't been a day, really. You know, so I know people say this, but and I think that for those of us that have lost loved ones that are super close to us, I really believe that it's true for most of us. And that is... Even now at 46 years old, there really hasn't been many days that have ever gone by where I don't think about him. Um, that's a lot of days. You know, and it's not something I feel sad about all the time or anything like that. It's nothing like that. It's just this, it's just this kind of ever-present constant awareness that he's gone and he's not here and it's just, it kind of permeates all the days. Uh, it's just this kind of like white noise background of reality. So that's, um, that's my take on my dad dying. 
His name was Lonnie D. Babbitt. And uh, I still have just amazing images in my mind of what a fantastic human being he was. So that's it for now. Talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.